Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. I don't know how it started or why it, what was going on. I just remember it was a snowy day. My parents left, and those were the words, don't mess with that tree. She had just put it up and all decorated. And that was back in the day when, I mean, when you put, do you guys put, remember the icicles and all those types of things? I mean, it just made a mess. And so, and it might have been a real tree at that time. And I, I just remember Dan and I, he's the third son. Him and I, for some reason, we normally got into, I don't know what it was, but we got into it and we started going at it. Next thing you know, what happens? That tree starts to fall down. And so a tree, you know, it's all those other things that fall. Things break. And it took us a while to finally realize what was going on. It's like, oh, then whatever the problem was, all of a sudden took a back seat. And then it's putting it all back together again to where mom would not notice. And you can imagine that she had noticed as soon as she walked in. But don't mess those. You know, it's just, she hadn't been out of the house very long. I doubt that they had gotten all the way down the street before that tree was falling over or soon to be. Well, in last week's passage, we read that due to Israel's agreement to the terms of the covenant, God's promises to take up personal residence among his people in the tabernacle, that it was God's plan and purpose to make right what went wrong in the garden. To, to reestablish his special relationship with his children, to meet up with him. Up to this point, Scripture shares that God spoke with men at special times and in special ways, but now Yahweh moves to create a special place where his children can come and worship and communicate with him. Theologian Dan Orland notes that God has been rescuing his people. He's been communicating his covenant law. And now, as we looked at last week, God instructed Israel how to receive his holy presence in their midst. Now, this tabernacle not only included a dwelling place, but also provided all the tools and the rituals and the ways in which uh, they would find temporary atonement for their sins so that they could enter into Yahweh's presence through that sacrificial system. Well, with joy, Israel accepted those wonderful plans, expectations, and intentions that the covenant required. We saw that two weeks ago. They were overwhelmed by God's gracious gifts that included protection and land and prosperity and health for them and their children. They, they willingly embraced the commandments of Yahweh, the Ten Commandments and those that we read, probably never considering the difficulty in obeying his rule. One day they, they were feasting and rejoicing in the good fortune that God would desire to dwell with them to find themselves the next day that they were feasting and rejoicing though in pagan worship, neglecting, even forgetting the very covenant that promised them life. One theologian writes that Israel's disobedience jeopardizes the covenant that was just given to them. However, as you and I read through this passage we read this past week, we read that in spite of Israel's disobedience, God is merciful to his rebellious children. We find that God is merciful to sinners. Father, we just come before you and we ask for your mercy to be shown. To many of us, to, to most of us here, 
as far as I know, you have shown mercy to us as sinners. We too were rebellious. We too have messed with the tree. We too have, have, have disobeyed you so soon after accepting you. But Lord, let us see your mercy in all the different ways that you give us. Let us open up our minds and hearts to receive your word, to learn from the Israelites as examples to us. And then also give praise and wonder, glory to you for your love that shows to us each and every day. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. I want to give you three observations for those of you who like to take notes. The first one we're going to see as we take our Bibles and look at Exodus 32 is that Israel immediately rebels against Yahweh. They immediately rebel against Yahweh. Look at verse uh, chapter 32. We're going to look at the first six verses together. Read silently with me as I read out loud. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And they received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Moses here records that Israel breaks the covenant before the ink is even, even dry. Impatient or in fear, the Israelites quickly turn to the pagan ways of their former masters and neighbors and compel Aaron to make a God for us who will go before us. You'll notice that the gods there is plural, not singular. Not knowing when or if Moses is going to return, they are seeking guidance, but not from the Lord who just made a covenant for them, not the one who rescued them from slavery, but from the very gods of their oppressors. Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was left in charge during Moses' absence, should have known better, but yet he succumbs to the pressure and he sets to build an idol fashioned in the likeness of a golden calf. Not only is Aaron complicit in making the idol, he then joins them in proclaiming that the lifeless idol was the God who brought him out of the land of Egypt. He then builds an altar, makes sacrifices, allowing the people to worship it, which includes adopting the practices of the pagans in immoral actions. Now this mimics the people's response in chapter 26 when they accepted the covenant made with God in sacrificing, feasting, and declaring with one voice, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do, but yet so quickly... A day later, a day or two later, they forget their oath and Moses' words as he went up back into the mountain. In Exodus chapter 24, 14, he had said, wait here for us until we return to you. I will return and behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. So he said, just wait here. I, I'll be here. I'll be back. I'll be back. But sadly, Aaron and her are negligent in their duties as Israel breaks the first two commandments that we've learned in Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above 
or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the heaven. You should not bow down to them or serve them. However, even in their breaking of the first covenant, it leads them to rise up and play to break the rest. In Exodus chapter 32 and verse 15, let's jump down there. We read of Moses' response and conversation when, with Aaron when he returns. In verse 15 of that chapter, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with two tablets of the testimony in his hands. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets, it says in verse 16, were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. A precious commodity. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and grounded it to powder. And he scattered it into the water and he made the people of Israel to drink, of it, drink it. Moses had a temper problem as you read through the Old Testament. He's very humble and honest. Of course, the Holy Spirit, as he's writing, is probably exposing it and he's sharing. And in his anger, he tears, he takes those precious tablets and he crushes them, throws them to the ground, crushing them in, into pieces. He sees their sin. He not only takes that, he burns it, but then he makes them drink it. But go down to verse 21. An interesting conversation, brother to brother. Maybe similar to the one that Dan and I had that night when we not, weren't supposed to mess with the tree. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? What is it, Aaron? What did they do? How did they make you do this? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know that the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of them. So I said to them, look at verse 24. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. What a ridiculous statement. His excuse is laughable. It's almost as bad as Adam who says, well, it's the wife you gave me. And Eve who says, well, it's the serpent who tempted me. And Cain who says, am I my brother's keeper? I just threw it in there when we just read that he fashioned it with a tool. Out came this calf. What am I supposed to do? They grievously sinned against God so quickly after joyfully receiving his covenant. The second point that we see as we continue on in Exodus 32 is in anger, God threatens to abandon the covenant. Look at verse 9. We're going to be moving back and forth into chapter a little bit. In verse 9 of chapter 32, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, Moses, let my wrath may, let my, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. The Lord here, he's ready just to get, he's dumb, done. Hey, I'll start all over. Hey, I started with Adam and Eve, and then I started with Noah. I started with Abraham, and I'll start all over with you. God is angry, 
and he threatens to abandon the covenant. However, Moses, Moses successively intercedes on behalf of his people. Look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt? With great power and with the mighty hand. Now that's important. This is throughout the Psalms you read of this. Every time that God responds to the people, he's, he's telling them, I am the one who's brought you out with a mighty hand. We've, we've read how the plagues were, in, were, were part of God's purpose to display his glory and reveal his power. But look in verse 12. And Moses does here is pretty, very cunning. Very good job what he does here. In verse 12 he goes, Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Verse 13, he gives a second reason. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he spoke of bringing on his people. Now, what we're reading here is that Moses intercedes on behalf of the Israelites. Do not destroy them. And he bases his intercession on God's character of faithfulness, reminding him of God's promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob or Israel. You see, God cannot deny his own character or his own promises and harm his own reputation. Now, what, I want to give you a note here. This is a side note. You and I must not read this passage and think that God is impulsive or reacts in anger without thinking, or nor that he makes empty threats or changes his mind, nor does he not know the actions or the responses of his creation. When we see here that God relented from his anger, changes his mind, whatever your passage may say, what we're seeing here is that scripture is using human terms so that you and I may know and understand God's working in the situation. You see, Yahweh is using Israel's disobedience, even in this situation, to display his holiness, his justice, and his mercy. He displays his holiness by not accepting their sin. He displays his justice by demanding accountability. And he displays his mercy by allowing Moses to act as an interceder for the children of Israel. This part of the passage points to the future work of Christ on behalf. If you were to look on the monitor here for a moment, pastor theologian R.C. Sproul correctly writes that the biblical narratives in which God appears to repent or change his mind are almost always narratives that deal with God's threats of judgment and punishment. These threats are then followed by the repentance of the people or by the intercessory petitions of their leaders. God is not talked into changing his mind. Out of his gracious heart, he only does what he has promised to do all along, not punish sinners who repent and turn from their evil ways. He chooses not to do what he has every right to to do. So we see that even in this instance, God is working something to his advantage, or I should say to his point to reveal who he is. And what we see is third point of the observation is that God displays his justice and he displays his mercy. 
We're going to see kind of almost a mixed bag here as we look at verse or chapter 32, look at verse 25. We see that Israel is going to pay a high price for their disobedience. In chapter 32, look at verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them broke loose in derision of their enemies. In other words, he had let them got out of control. I think the pagan worship and the immorality that was going on led to uh, uh, almost kind of when David sinned against Bathsheba, or sinned with Bathsheba. It says, you've given the enemies of God a chance to rejoice. But in verse 26, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And look at what we see here. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. These are the children of the tribe of Levi. And he said to them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. 3,000. They had to kill their own brothers and sisters and cousins. What a terrible day of mourning that would have been. But then look at verse 35. For God's justice was not done. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Now he doesn't give us the number, but some have estimated that it was almost 20,000 people in some portions of scripture, depending on how you might take it. But what we see here is God is displaying his justice. He hears the words that we see of Moses and Moses' intercession. He hears the passion and the love for the Israelite children. He wants to uh, save his reputation or fulfill his promises, but it comes at a price. And you and I must understand that sin always comes with a price. We are seeing that every day as we turn on the news or look on on the newspaper. Someone else who thought they got away with it, the price will be paid. So God still brings severe justice on the idolaters. But what's important here is we're also going to see his mercy. For his mercy, he does not abandon his partnership with the people as a whole because of his promises to Abraham. Well, we do see that he looks like he's going to change the, 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 the uh, I'm sorry, he's going to change the covenant. Look at verse, chapter 33. Look at those verse, first three verses of chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, and you, the people whom you have brought of the land of Egypt, go to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. He says, I'm going to give you the land, and I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. He says, I'm going to still send you the protector, and I'm still going to give you victory over them. So I'm going to give you protection. I'm going to give you the promise of the land. And then he says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm still going to give you the prosperity and the health that I promised you. But, but, I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff neck people. They get the promise of land, protection, prosperity. They all stay intact. But God's presence now will not accompany them. You and I sell heaven like that many times. You've heard me say this. This is old shoe for me. 
Many times we sell heaven as, hey, it's all the wonderful things. Protection, uh, you can do everything you want to do. You can shoot golf all you want. It's everyone's going to be a hole in one and everything's going to be perfect. It's always going to be wonderful. We sell heaven as if God isn't there. We don't really care if God's there. We just want paradise. But let me tell you, their paradise is not paradise without the presence of God. Which one of us would want to go back to the Garden of Eden? Where God is not there. The tabernacle and the temple, no longer is God's presence there. Of course, they aren't either. But what we see here, God says, you're going to get all that you want, except you're not going to get me. Moses records that the people responded by mourning and humbling themselves in their dress and their appearance. Almost in a sackcloth and ashes type thing. But what's wonderful is that God ultimately forgives Israel and commits to guiding them to the promised land. As you were to continue on in that passage, Moses and God continue the conversation. And Moses says, listen, I don't want to go if you're not there. I I don't want any of this. I don't want no pardon. If you're not going to go with us, then I'm not going. Once again, God relents and promises to go with them and continues on with the preparation for the tabernacle. This is wonderful things as we see God's justice, but yet God's mercy. Now I want to give you three themes here that's so important. And I really want to share this here with the children here so you have these words so you can write them on your notes. And parents, I really want you to spend some time uh, today at lunch or later this evening or this week sharing with your children these three words, these three themes that we're seeing here in the scriptures. This passage clearly reveals the cycle of idolatry, intercession, and integrity that will repeat throughout the history of Israel. The Old Testament records Israel's continued fall into idolatry, a man of God interceding on their behalf, and then Yahweh forgiving and restoring them. What is happening here will continue to happen throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And I'm going to say that they continue to happen in churches across the world today and in the lives of Christians. Hence, I think it's important for not only you to understand it, but for your children. Idolatry, intercession, and integrity. And if you were to take those things, that right there is the heartbeat of the gospel. It's the heartbeat of the gospel. Four times in our passage today, Scripture points out that Israel is stiff-necked and rebellious. Centuries later, God will tell the prophet of Ezekiel that the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, God says, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Even the first martyr, Stephen, is recorded in the Acts of Apostles, condemning the people of Israel, saying, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Now this should not be surprising, as this has been the condition of all of humanity since the fall in the garden. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, we read that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Apostle Paul describes to the church of Rome 
that all of humanity has their throat as an open grave, that their tongues, we use them to deceive, that the venom of ass is under our lips and that our mouths are full of curses and bitterness. As we read earlier in our call to worship, there is none that do good, no, not one. There's none that seeketh after God. You see, you and I are all guilty of the first word. Like Israel, we are all guilty of idolatry. John Calvin wrote that man's heart is an idol-making factory. We spend our time churning out idols of all sorts. He goes on to write, now listen to this. The human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity. In other words, we make God of our own images. As it labors under dullness, nay, is sunk in the grossest ignorance, it substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. In other words, we're so dull of hearing, we're so bored, we just want things of our own pride and things that puff us up. To these evils, another is added. To God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, we then attempt to embody outwardly. Let me share with you, I know we have children here, but if you're going to make the sexual revolution your God, then don't be surprised in what you see in the newspapers today. For what you desire and hold up is what eventually you'll embody. Now you will be able to hold it and hide it for some time, but eventually it comes out. And it mars not only the inside, but eventually the outside. He goes on to say, the mind in this way conceives the idol and the hand gives it birth. You and I are like Aaron. We throw in all the things that we desire and the things that we want. And then something comes up and we're like, oh, wow. I didn't really want to think that. I don't really want that. But yes, you did. It's something that you have fashioned by your own hand. That's why we say to check ourselves, to test and examine your heart and your mind. For the heart is wicked, desperately wicked. It's evil. And you and I are guilty of idolatry. The gospel primer points out that this wonderful God who has given us all that we have, the breath, every function of our organ, it says is the supreme worthy object of admiration, honor and delight in all the universe. And that God has created you and I with the intention that you and I might look on him and glorify him, finding our soul's delight in him and by living in joyful obedience to him in all of our ways. This is why we are created. But it goes on to note, instead of giving thanks to him and humbly submitting to his rule over our life, that you and I have rebelled against him and we've actually sought to exalt ourselves above him. Like Lucifer, we say, I will be like the most high. Going our own way and living according to our own wisdom, you and I have broken countless times the letter or the spirit of every one of God's Ten Commandments. Hence, we are all guilty of idolatry. You and I are Israel. We too stand condemned, rising up to play to the tune of our own music, ignoring the commands of God, espousing silly excuses when confronted by our sin. The penalty of that disobedience and rebellion is the wrath of God that culminates in death and the removal of God's blessings and gifts. This is what you and I need to know and understand. It's what we need to give to our children. Let me tell you, the greatest gift that you can give your children is not only a great marriage, but also the words of God 
and a desire for God and an appetite for the things of God. For let me tell you, they will fill those appetites with that which destroys and kills. Yet you and I can be thankful that God has not left us without options. Just as God allowed Moses to intercede on behalf of Israel, God has sent a great interceder to advocate for his children. So not only are we guilty of idolatry, but God's mercy has come to give us an interceder. In other words, he says, I'll listen to your case. And some of us go before God and we give the excuse of Aaron or Adam and Eve and Cain. But listen to the words of Moses who goes before God and reminds him of his reputation and reminds him of his promises. Let me tell you, if you really truly want to have power in your prayer, remind God of his promises, remind God of his reputation. Claim those. But see, he's given us a better interceder than Moses. The penalty of that disobedience and rebellion is the wrath of God. But yet, just as God allowed Moses to intercede on behalf of Israel, God has sent a greater interceder. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the one who intercedes for us. Take a moment to look at the monitor. I want to share with you just four verses. Who is to condemn? It says in Romans. Well, Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised who is the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. As Moses interceded for them, he's pleading his case. He is able to save in Hebrews those to the uttermost who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercessions for him. This is what Christ does in the right hand throne of God, reminding God of his promises to us, reminding him of who we are. John says, I am praying for them. This is Jesus himself. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And in 1 John, my little children, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does, look at this. We have what? An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus intercedes for God's children. Those that have repented of their sin and turned and trust in the works of Christ for salvation. Even after then, when you and I fall and fail into sin, fail and fall into sin, Jesus intercedes as we confess that sin. Jesus pleads our case before the Father, reminding him, speaking in earthly terms, that you and I are God's children and the promises given to his children, counting on the very character of God, which brings us to the next theme of integrity. Now, I'm not speaking of our integrity, our hearts are no different than the children of Israel. What we are quick to forget, while you and I are quick to forget the plan, the expectations, and the promises of God ourselves, God remembers. Turn to James chapter 1, if you would, real quickly, please. In verse 22. You know what? I'm sorry. Turn real quickly to Exodus. I'm sorry. That's, I'm not speaking of our integrity, but I'm speaking of God's. Let's turn to Exodus chapter I think you're already there. I need to get there. Chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. And then we'll go to James. We'll do a Bible sword drill. In Exodus chapter 34, I believe you're there. Look at verse 6. Again, a conversation between Moses and God. And Moses says, I, I can't go without you. Show me your glory. Show me that you, your love is still on us. And so he does, does so with his back to him. 
In verse 6, the Lord passed before him and claimed, and this is what the Lord says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. So it's not our integrity in which we're looking at, but that of God. In James chapter 1, turn to James chapter 1, verse 22. If you're there, I'm just going to go ahead and read. If not, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And see, so you and I many times are like that. God has given us his plans, he has given us his expectations, and he gives us his promises that you and I have to look forward to. But many times, we walk out and forget what type of people we are. We forget to do the very things of God. He reminds us of James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights? Why is the world in such uh, disrepair? Why is there so much anger? Well, he says, is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you do not ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. You and I need to realize that we have a great God who understands our need and is asking for us to come in repentance. You see, God has every right to condemn us for our sin and continue disobedience in his word. Jesus himself taught his disciples that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The apostle John would write, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Yet God in his integrity does not condemn or threaten his children. The Apostle Paul writes these wonderful words of God that there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You and I must dwell in that. You and I must bathe in that. Let that permeate our minds and hearts. For like Israel, many times they, become, they go into idolatry, but instead of repentance, they try to run from God. We do that each and every time. The Bible tells us that he loves us and in his integrity he comes to us. The Gospel Primer, many of you remember that. If you've never gotten a copy of the Gospel Primer, would you let me know after the service? I'd love to give a copy of it into your hand. It's a wonderful little booklet that would be a great devotion for you and your family. The Gospel Primer captures the promises of God and his perfect mercy and faithfulness as it summarizes the wonderful, rich mercy of God. Listen to what he says. Now when my time came and I placed my faith in Christ, God instantly granted to us a great salvation. And I pray that that's your testimony this morning. God forgave us of all of our sins, past, present, and future. And he made us, uh, he made us his child, adopting us into his family. But listen, your salvation is more than just eternity. It's more than just forgiveness of sin. For he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives us God's power, who pours out God's love in our hearts, who tenderly communicates to our spirit that we are children of God and that we are the heir of eternal glory in heaven. And that in saving us, God also freed us from the slavery to any and all sins. You and I no longer have to sin again. For sin's mastery over me has been broken. 
in saving us, God also justified us, made us right. And being justified, we have peace with God that will endure forever. No longer will God says, I'm going to tear them up. I'm going to start anew. We have a greater promise than the one given to the children of Israel in that time. And in justifying us, God has declared us innocent of all sin and he's pronounced us righteous with the very righteousness of Christ. His God has also allowed his future and his presence wrath against me to completely be propitiated or paid by Christ who bore upon himself on the tree. Listen to this, because of that, Here's the thing that you must understand if you want to live a life that's at peace with God. God now only has love and compassion and the deepest affection for you. And this love is without any mixture of wrath whatsoever. Again, think about it. Go back to Exodus. His chosen people, the one chosen for him, the ones of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He rescues them. But God says, in this moment, I will just tear them down. There's no wrath like that towards you when you fail and when you sin. God always looks on you and I and he treats us with gracious favor, always working all things together for our ultimate internal good. When you and I sin, God's grace abounds to us. All the more he graciously maintains my justified status. When I sin, God feels no wrath in his heart against me. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me. He longs for us to repent and to confess our sins to him so that, we might show he, but that he might show us the gracious and forgiving love that has been in his heart. Goes on and on. God does see our sins. He is grieved by our sins. And his grief comes from the fact that in my moments of sin, I'm not receiving the fullness of his love for me. He even sends chastisement, but he does so because he is for us. He loves us and he disciplines us for our ultimate good. You and I do not deserve any of this, even on our best days. But this is the salvation. And this is the salvation that you and I stand in. We have something greater than what Israel has here. It's pointing to it. We're all guilty of idolatry. But God in his mercy sends an intercessor who pleads this case, whom he listens to and in his integrity loves and forgives. That's the gospel. Jesus, the greater Moses, has done that for you and I. And his presence will not be withheld from his children. He says, Emmanuel, I and with you. I'd like to leave you with these words of encouragement. I believe it's on the monitor, Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine? How about nakedness, danger, or sword? Now as written, for your sake we are all being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The world hates us. The world seeks to demolish us. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He doesn't call on us to grab our swords and start cutting each other, slashing each other down. Maybe it's appropriate that we join Sean and Lydia in membership. For now, as children of God, covenant together, 
We will fail. We will sin. But we don't call each other and say, grab your sword. Start slicing and dicing and putting them to death. You know, it's been said, unfortunately, sadly, that the Christian army is the only army that slays, that kills its wounded. Let's not be so. For we have a greater purpose now. God has given us a greater promise. One that has bought peace, not only between God and man, between man and man. Let me end with this. God wants you to understand this. That he is a merciful, faithful, forgiving God who loves his children and desires to make us into the image of his son. You and I cannot out God's mercy. So come to him this morning. If your conscience is bothering you, if you're struggling with your sin, understand that you cannot out God's mercy. God wants you to believe that if you repented of dead works and you put your trust that God has accepted the works of Christ in your behalf, that he will embrace you as his own child and he is preparing a place, an eternal home where you will dwell forever with him. Put your hope there. God wants you to desire him above all things. Idolatry is still the number one sin in all of our lives. It finds itself in our pride. But recognize that God has desires that he has created you, that you may see him as the supreme object of admiration. And he wants you to desire his pleasures and his promises. See the idolatry in your own life. And like Moses, cast it. And if you must, powder it and drink it. It's, it's, it's bitter taste to see that it gives no pleasure. And here's what God wants you to do. He wants you to continue in maturity in the faith by obeying his word and fulfilling the great commission that he has given to all of his children. He wants you to serve as ambassadors of Christ, as good faithful stewards, shining as a light to all the nations that Jesus is Lord. As we continue this cycle of idolatry, let us look to the one who's the, our interceder that we may trust in the integrity of God. Not that we may sin, that sin may abound. Paul says, no, God forbid, that we desire the things of God, killing the idolatry that's in our hearts. Would you pray that we would learn from those who've gone before us, trusting in the one who can make us clean. There we head bowed and there we head closed. Just take a moment to pause to consider what Moses records for us in the life of the Israelites. Consider how it mirrors our own experience and thoughts and sin. Would you pray for the Holy Spirit to show how you should respond? And would you do so this morning? Would you come to the God who is merciful to sinners. Ah, you're a wonderful God. We thank you for your mercies. And your word tells us that your mercies are ever new and your faithfulness is there. Direct our hearts to that, Father. Let us never doubt whether you are here or when you will return, but trust in your good promises your plan, your purpose, and your expectations. And Father, when we fail, let us go quickly to the advocate, your son, Jesus Christ, who pleads our case. 
And may we surround ourselves with the mercy of your love and your mercy. And may we share this with those, Father, who need it so badly. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith@orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.